Welcome to Mormon Awakening. My name is Jack Nanik. I hope we'll have something interesting for you today. I want to talk a little bit today about the book of Job, and specifically about the man Job. We don't talk about Job very much in our church. In fact, I don't think Christianity in general talks a lot about Job in their current discourse. And I'd go as far as to say I don't think Judaism talks a lot about Job in its current discourse. You know, what I mean is when you go to church on Sunday, you go to temple on, on Saturday. I don't think people are talking about Job a lot. The book of Job is sort of a mystery. And what, am I, what I mean by that is that nobody really knows who wrote Job. Nobody really knows why they wrote Job. The, the contents of Job um, are, are so different than what was written preceding Job. You know, for Judaism, it doesn't it doesn't fit into the laws of the prophets to the basic narrative that the children of Israel need to obey the prophets and follow God, or they're going to get destroyed. And when they do listen to the prophets and when they do follow God, they're blessed. I mean, that's kind of this cyclical thing in the Old Testament. We, the LDS, have a a similar narrative, which we see in the Book of Mormon, and which we've turned into a specific concept called the pride cycle. You know, you're, you're humble, you're obedient, and then your obedience leads to great blessings. And then when you start to get great blessings, you start thinking a little too well of yourself, and then you become arrogant, and then it hits the fan, and you lose everything, and you're cursed, essentially, and then we're back to square one, and around and around and around it goes. Just in a, as an aside, I, I really don't think that the pride cycle is very helpful. I don't think it really helps us to understand much about life. I guess it, I guess it teaches us that being arrogant is bad, and, and, you know, if you're arrogant, you know, pride comes before the fall and great arrogance leads to, leads to carelessness, which, you know, I, I guess, you know, I, I know a lot of really arrogant, successful, rich people who, you know, it never hits the fan for them. I know a lot of humble, very obedient people who just are incompetent and they never rise above the mud. So I'm not really sure what the pride cycle is trying to teach us. It's, you know, and then, then when, you know, you're going to be cursed and, you know, I, I just think this, this causal connection between obedience and, and abundance just, it's correlated, but I, I'm not sure how causal it is. You know, I, I don't think obedience causes abundance. It's correlated. Anyways, I'm digressing here. You know, the point I'm trying to make is that the book of Job does not really fit into these paradigms. It's it's a very unusual, different kind of book, a strange sort of book. It's puzzled scholars. It's It's puzzled people who have read it. It also doesn't really fit into uh, the Christian and the Mormon narrative or or underlying presumption, rather, that all of the Old Testament points to Jesus. Every book in the Old Testament 
Every, every, you know, the whole thing was written. They were all just looking forward to Jesus coming. And I, you know, I don't want to get too heretical here, but I, I, if you've read the Old Testament, that, that really isn't how it reads. You know, you can grab a verse or two here or there and, and take it out of context and say, see, but, but my reading of the Old Testament is that it does not quite read that way. You know, maybe everyone during the, during the entire BC period was, was looking towards, you know, the birth of Jesus. Maybe, but that's not the way the Old Testament reads. You know, and, and so when we think about Job and, and how most Christians would look at Job, there are no pithy verses in Job that Christians are able to pull out of context and say, see, this points to the Savior coming. This points to Jesus being born in Jerusalem. The entire Old Testament, including Job, points towards, you know, there's nothing really like that in Job. You know, this is not to say that Job has had no impact on Christian thought. I mean, we, we've all heard the expression, the patience of Job, you know, which, which he used when someone just has an incredibly bad string of luck and somehow they survive it and they are able to keep moving forward. Oh, that, that guy, Jim, boy, his house burned down and his wife left him and he went bankrupt. Boy, he really has the patience of Job. When I was a kid, I thought Job was a more prominent book because my grandmother would always talk about Job. But but she got the gist of Job wrong. She would always talk about Job in terms of of not denying something that you know is true. You know, and she'd basically say, oh, Job was so abused, but he never once turned his back on what he knew was right. He never turned and cursed God. Oh, Job was, was so stalwart and steadfast. In spite of all that he was afflicted with, he was, he was so steadfast. So I had this mental image of Job just, you know, sitting in the wilderness somewhere, huddled around some fire with a blanket over himself, just getting rained on and crapped on and thieves coming by and beating him up and just all this abuse being heaped on Joe and he would just look up to heaven and smile and I know the church is true. I mean, I, I know that sounds ridiculous, but that was my impression as a boy. Then when I became an adult, I actually read Job. By the way, it's, it's a, it's a very tedious book. You know, it's 42 chapters. The first chapter is interesting. The second chapter is sort of interesting. The next 38 are incredibly boring and repetitive. Then 41st chapter is okay and the 42nd chapter is okay. But the basic story of Job is, is of this guy who does everything right. Now remember, this is within the, the Old Testament children of Israel context. So everything right according to what those people at that time considered right. You know, he, he kept all the commandments. He did all the sacrifices. He did all the cleansings, all the, all the stuff that you're supposed to do. He was pious. And he also happened to be incredibly wealthy. You know, gigantic herds, thousands of head of cattle, sheep. You know, he has a wife. Presumably she's incredibly good looking. His children, many children, all beautiful, all handsome, all strong. They're all married, tons of grandchildren, you know, huge house. He has everything and he's perfect. 
So he's the, he's the perfect Old Testament children of Israel keeping the law of Moses Jewish guy. All the men want to be Job. All the women want to marry Job. He, you know, he's this guy. He's the Old Testament Mitt Romney. You know, he's what Mitt Romney is to the Mormon community. He's this great looking guy. He's religious. You know, he keeps all the rules, very scrupulous. You know, you can say what you want about Mitt Romney, but there's never been an article saying he, he's ripped somebody off. He's cheated. You know, he, he bagged church to go, you know, play golf or, you, you know, you never see Mitt Romney in the casino. I mean, he, he's the archetypal Mormon, the, the archetype of the abundance doctrine. So that's who Job was for the children of Israel. Everything worked out. He did everything right. He was perfect. He was rich. And then for some reason, God basically has a bet with Satan. I mean, before the bet, God's saying, look at this guy, Job. See here, Lucifer. See this guy, Job. He's so great. I mean, it's like God is gloating about Job, the the perfect archetypal Old Testament man. I mean, it doesn't say this in the text, but you get the sense, almost, that God's saying, see, Lucifer, see, see what happens to people when they, when they just do what I say. They turn out so great. And again, I'm, I'm reading a little bit into the text there. And then Lucifer's response to God is, is, uh, similar to what I think a lot of us have thought during a fast and testimony meeting or during a general conference meeting when, when there's someone up there gloating about how great we are as a people or how great my specific family is because we've kept all the commandments. You know, we've done everything God has told us to do. We're fantastic. We're super righteous. Uh, how blessed we are. We're so great. I mean, you, there's this vibe sometimes, this sort of clueless slash arrogant vibe that you get sometimes from some people. So Lucifer says, well, of course, Job is fantastic. And of course, he keeps all the commandments. Look, you've blessed him with everything. You've given him massive herds, the great looking white, the kids, the house. You know, he's he's fantastic. Of course, he's going to do what you ask him to do. You're just raining blessings on him. So then Lucifer says, I, I can break this guy. Let me, let me have, let me have Adam. I can break him and I'll turn him into a, you know, cowering, sniveling, you know, sad little man like everyone else on earth. I mean, how often have we thought that when some second tier 70 gets up and talks about how great we are as a people and how fantastic and blessed we are and, and we're so terrific and awesome and, And we think, yeah, it's easy for this guy to get up and talk about how great Mormonism is. He has a contract to build the next temple. And my stake, our stake president is worth, I think, $300 million. It's easy for a lot of people when he gets up to talk about things to say, well, yeah, of course it's easy for you to do. I mean, look at you. You have your own airplane. Now, I'm not saying that sort of attitude is right. I, I think that attitude is that attitude, you know, being envious or or t- 
you know, criticizing someone because they've been successful and rejecting what they say because they have more than you do, I think that's a fundamentally cancerous attitude. I mean, that, that, that's something that will really hurt your soul. But, but we do it. It's human nature. You know, our, our minds generate this sort of, this sort of stuff. So Satan says to God, hey, let me break this guy. I think it's the origin of schadenfreude. For anyone who doesn't know what that term means, schadenfreude is the, the joy at the demise of someone else. The joy, it's, it's feeling joy when someone else is suffering. Or, or more specifically, when someone else falls from grace and you feel a great joy. I don't know if you remember Elliot Spitzer. He was the attorney general of New York. And he, 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 he was really hard on Wall Street bankers and insider training and just insider trading, just really went after him. Then it turned out Elliot Spitzer was, was a, a frequent patron at the local brothels and, and, uh, you know, there was collective schadenfreude from the Wall Street banking community when that was revealed. Anyway, so God says, okay, Satan, you, you, you try to break this guy. You try to make him into a miserable wretch. And I, I, I don't think, I don't think you're going to break Job. I mean, he, he, it's more specific than just breaking Job. Satan wants to get Job to curse God. To get Job to pull a Captain Dan. Remember Captain Dan from Forrest Gump? Anyways, there's a scene where the legless Captain Dan is strapped to the mast of the shrimping boat, screaming at God in anger during this massive hurricane, yelling at God to, to bring it. If you haven't seen Forrest Gump, go watch it. It's a great movie. Anyways, God says, okay, Satan, have at it. You try to get Job to, to curse me, to scream at me, to, to pull a Captain Dan. Now, this is interesting in my view. Because I, I really don't think that God cares if we curse him or not. You know, it's, it's set up in the book of Job as if cursing God is the worst thing you can ever do. And, you know, Job will spontaneously combust and be summarily, you know, escorted down to hell once he does that. You know, to be a, to be a foot soldier in Satan's army. And that's why Satan wants to get him to curse God. And, you know, this is all kind of implied. You know, my own view is that God is a little more high minded and a little more mature than, than that. <laughs> in fact i'm going to go even go as far as to say that you may have some of your deepest most spiritual moments when you're at peak frustration and cursing god and again we could spend 10 podcasts talking about that but my point here is that you know i think god's a little smarter than satan and even if Satan gets Job to curse him, I think God kind of, God knows what's going on here. And he's okay with that. And there's a purpose. God has his own purpose for allowing Satan entrance into into Job's life to basically screw everything up. 
So then the next scene in the book is Job, you know, sitting in his lawn chair on the pavilion of his estate. And messenger after messenger comes to him. And every single messenger has just the most appalling, horrifying news anyone would ever want to hear. Just one after another. Hey, Job, remember all your cattle? Oh, they're all dead. Remember all your sheep? Gone. Then another messenger comes. Hey, remember that big party? All your kids, all their spouses, all your grandkids, they're having this big festival. Remember that? Well, the banquet house house they were having it in, the roof collapsed. Everybody's dead. Every single one. By the way, we're still in chapter one. All this happens in chapter one. The, the book is 42 chapters long. Anyways, it, it's a shock to Job. I mean, it'd be a shock to anybody. And Job, to his credit, he doesn't just react. The final verse is, in all this, Job sin not, nor charge God foolishly. You know, he doesn't just say, oh, let's see, I've lost everything and everybody's dead. (laughs) Enough of this religious stuff, enough of these dumb commandments. You know, I'm going to the bar, I'm going to the casino. This is why I'm keeping all the rules for this. You know, I made all these promises, made all these covenants, did everything I was supposed to, and, and this is what happened. You know, with with religious promises and covenants like this, who needs, I don't know, who needs curses? Is, is that what would be analogous? And this is a good response. I mean, I, I don't want to, I don't think we should get too carried away with it. I mean, I, I'm, I'm old enough to to know people who have gone through very difficult things and most of them just, most of them don't say, well, I've, you know, kept all the rules of my religion and these difficult things happen to me. And so I'm going to now go out and break all the rules and, you know, I'm going to go commit adultery and, you know, go to strip clubs and go to the casino and start robbing banks. And, you know, and in the process, I'm going to scream at God as I'm driving down the highway so I'm not exactly sure what Satan was expecting. I mean, I, I do know people who, um, when they come across trouble, will will deal with it in unhealthy ways. You know, I, I had a friend in college, for example, and her boyfriend dumped her summarily. And then she went out and got drunk and started smoking. This is at BYU. You know, so that wasn't a healthy way of dealing with that disappointment. I mean, it's not quite the same thing as losing all your cattle and having all your offspring die. But again, Job, Job's response is certainly noble. You know, he he did not sin and he did not charge God foolishly. You know, he didn't just stop observing uh, the tenets of his religion. He didn't start screaming at God recklessly. And then chapter two begins. And again, God goes to Satan, or Satan comes to God, or however you want to think about it. And God's got a grin on his face and said, hey, you know, Job, he, you know, hasn't cursed me yet. So Satan says, well, I mean, he's still able-bodied. I mean, he can go out and work and presumably, and he can start rebuilding and let me let me have a shot at his body. And 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 God says, "Okay, you can 
You can do whatever you want to Job short of killing him. Can't kill him. But you can, you can, you can afflict his body. You know, I read an article the other day. I was talking about one of the financial markets, a specific company. And this company's stock had fallen from 220 down to 35. Massive drop, 85% drop. And the article was basically saying, you know, th- this company has had a horrible run, but it can still get worse. Do not buy it. And if you're Job, or if you're Job's wife, at this point you're saying, boy, we've really had a crappy string of luck. I think things are about to turn around. You know, let's hang in there. Let's not sin. Let's keep our wits about us. Let's not identify with our life situation, in the words of Eckhart Tolle, or with the thoughts of our mind. Let's let's hang in there. And we're not going to curse God. We're going to sort of stay the course. And this has been a, a terrible string of bad luck, but things are going to going to turn for us. Well, Job, it can still get worse. Because the loving God you worship has just allowed Satan to afflict your flesh and bone short of killing you. Thanks for the obedience. You're welcome. I mean, if I were Job, if I caught wind of this deal in heaven between God and Satan, I mean, I'd be reevaluating some of those primary songs I learned. You know, keep the commandments. That will keep you safe. Follow the prophets. I mean, I, I... you know, at this point, I might begin to reevaluate. And so Lucifer decides to afflict Job with boils from head to toe. You know, it's a, a boil is a gigantic zit. It's like a zit volcano. You know, think of the worst pimple you've ever had. Multiply it by about 20. That's a boil. This massive red volcano-like zit which eventually has to pop. It's very painful before it pops. You know, it's, it's, it's just this big abscess. I've had one boil. I had it when I was a kid. And it was on my forehead of all places. It was huge. It was probably, the diameter of it was probably as big as a quarter. And I had a paper out when I was a boy. And, oh man, I'd get headaches. And then, you know, I'd have this big bandage on my forehead and my friends would this is when I was 12 or 13, you know, when boys are their most sensitive. So my friends would come up and whack me in the forehead where my boil was. Well, anyways, I came home from my paper out one morning, and I took my hat off and pulled the bandage off, and it had popped. I won't go into the gross details, but but I share that with you just to, just to you know, for anyone who's had a boil, boils are a bummer. And if your whole body's covered with these things, that, that's that's... That's a massive bummer. <laughs> so Job's lost everything, all his herds, all of his material possessions, the banquet house, all of his children, grandchildren, everything. His response to that was, let's stay the course. Let's hold to the rod. You know, let's, let's not go in, in, into a, tailspin and become self-destructive, you know, let's, we're not going to go on a drinking binge. 
Let's, let's stay the course. And his reward for that patience was a body covered with boils from head to toe. Volcano-like pimples, the base of which could be anywhere between a half to two inches, all waiting to explode. You know, boils don't go away until they pop or, you know, in the modern world, you can get them lanced and go to your local clinic and get them lanced. I don't think there was a Obamacare back in Job's time. And so what he did was he took broken pieces of ceramic pots, pot shirts, and he started scraping his body, trying to, trying to scrape out the infection, trying to get these things to, to pop and to begin to heal. And at this point, his wife's had it. I mean, she just, you know, we don't hear much from her. Who, who knows where, what she's, you know, it's pretty miserable for her too, by the way. We don't, we don't hear about Job's wife experience, but you know, they were her kids too. And they were her herds, presumably, at least she was benefiting from Job having them. And, you know, she's really suffering as well. So she goes to Job and she says, look, enough of this. Just, you know, we're not just let's let's go die. You know, the specific verses, you know, does thou still retain thine integrity? You know, I, that doesn't really ring like a ring authentic to me. It, it seems more like a device the author's using to make a to make a point. You know, for example, if I lost my house and my cars and my job and anything I'd ever accumulated over the last you know period of my life, and my wife came into me and you know she's depressed too. By the way, all of our kids are dead. Every you know our dog's dead. I don't think she'd say. Dost thou still retain thine integrity? I mean, I, that's, that, that probably wouldn't be her response. She'd probably say something like, well, you know, this just sucks beyond belief. Maybe we ought to think about killing ourselves. And, and Job's wife does say that at the end. She says, curse God and die. And I think what she's really saying is, you know, go up to the, to the local cliff and, you know, do a swan dive. Job again, says to her what, what 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 we were happy to receive god's blessings when things were going great we're not going to we're not going to accept his his curses and you know curse is a funny word in the old testament we talked about job cursing god that's what satan wanted job wanted satan wanted job to curse god and now we hear job saying you know we're going to accept god's blessings and and god's curses i think in this context I think it means not that you're cursed, but that you're afflicted in order to be strengthened. I, I think Job had been taught that intellectually. He knew that intellectually. He had read it somewhere. Somebody had told him, you know, Job, Job's smart. This is also, by the way, when the story of Job begins to be really profound, really, really interesting. We, we spoke last episode about this guy, Eckhart Tolle. And we talked specifically about the mind versus the spirit. What Eckhart Tolle calls that the inner body, but 
you know, we'll call it the spirit, the heart, in the world, of, in the words of Wilfred Anderson. And we talked a lot about identifying with your thoughts, with with the product of what your brain, as a separate kind of independent entity, a little bit beyond your control, is generating. You know, and you can't take all of your thoughts too seriously. You got to step back, go into the inner body, the spirit. And, and watch those, those thoughts, you know, watch your thoughts from your, from your inner body, from your heart as a distinct entity from your mind. But, but Eckhart Tolle also talks about a life situation and he says, you're not your life situation. You're much deeper, much more fundamental, much more profound, much more perfect spiritual being deep down. You're not your life situation. And Job, to his credit at this point, seems to recognize that. He says, you know, we're, we're not our life situation. The Lord can give a life situation. He can take a life situ- situation away. And he has his purposes. I think Job understands that intellectually. He understands that abstractly. We talked about this last episode, too, the difference between abstract knowledge and experience. And I think Job has the abstract knowledge that that the Lord's going to teach us through life situations and that we are not our situations. You know, he's not, he's Job, the spirit, the, the, the spiritual being. And his life situation was one of, of wealth and abundance. And now his life situation is one of <laughs> nothing and being covered with boils, but he's not those things. He's, he's something, he's a being of light, more fundamental, more fundamental than those things. I think he understands that abstractly. Again, I don't think he, he totally gets it, but he understands that. And he says that the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. And that's really, you know, one of the more famous verses. But Lord's, but, but Job says that in chapter two. Okay. So if you think Job really gets it in chapter two, he, he doesn't. You know, he's learned it in a textbook and he's taken his test and gotten an A, like, like the young untested guy full of bravado from church. We all know this guy, right? We we know the the young buck who storms into the ward, fresh out of graduate school, knows everything, completely untested, but he knows everything. Takes the ward by storm, becomes the elder scorn president, speaks with great certitude. You know, he's bright, but he's also just a complete ignoramus when it comes to experience. And when it comes to really knowing things deep in your soul. And anybody who has any experience at all is a little scared of this guy because he's, he's so smart, so confident, so brainy and so unbelievably moronic at the same time. You know, I think he scares the old timers in the ward the same way that the Hitler youth of the Red Guard sort of are scary, you know? They just don't know how to apply the doctrines very well. So we know this guy, and Job is a little bit like this guy. I mean, I think Job is advanced way beyond this this kind of stereotype I'm painting. But we know that he's not there yet. You know, and we know this because we're still in chapter two. And remember, the, the book is forty two chapters long. So we know that Job hasn't completed going through the fire. Not yet. And we know this because Job's patience and Job's 
really Zen-like response, response is, they kind of stop or they kind of end at the end of, of chapter two. The rest of the book, okay, so from chapter three to chapter 40 is, is basically Job sitting around this fire. First of all, his, his, his three friends come to comfort him. They hear, they hear about all this terrible stuff that would happen to him. So they go to comfort him. These three guys. So it's Job and these three guys for, for the next, what, 30, 37 chapters sitting around the fire discussing Job's predicament. And, and Job's attitude shifts a little bit because the whole time during these 37 chapters, he's saying, Man, I, I've done everything right. He, the, the disillusionment that we expected from Job earlier starts to, to come around. I, gosh, I've done everything right. I've done nothing wrong. I've never committed a sin. I've been perfect. You know, what the heck? This is what happens? You know, I lose everything and I'm covered with boils and now I'm, I'm sitting around a fire with you guys. And his friends, Response is, Job, come on. You must have done something wrong. Right? God, God doesn't just curse the righteous. Come on. You, you, there's something you're not telling us, Job. What is it? You know, you, you, you got a mistress. You know, you've got gambling debts. You know, you, you, you're involved in a hit and run. You know, you killed, you killed somebody. You're, you're, you're an arsonist. What, what is, what's, you're stealing the tithing money from the church. What, what, you know, what have you done? Come clean. You know, it reminds me of those movies depicting the, the Chinese great leap forward. You know, and all the communists are in charge of China suddenly. The peasants are running China and all the capitalists, the aristocrats, they're all, you know, being chased around by the peasants. And when the, when the mobs catch the aristocrats, they make them sign these confessionals. You know, admit to what you've done. Tell us how horrible you, you are. You're a horrible capitalist pig. Admit your crimes. You know, they made them write out these long confessions. And, you know, a lot of these people were just the, had the bad fortune of being born into a, a wealthy family. You know, they don't, they don't see themselves as criminals or having done anything wrong. Well, that's what's going on with Job. You know, his three friends are the, the Nazi interrogators with their leather gloves and, you know, Job just keeps saying, I, I, you know, I don't, I don't, I haven't done anything. I haven't done anything wrong. Stop, stop smacking me around. Again, really insightful, um, observation of human nature. I mean, how often have we looked at the person in the ward who drives the crappy rust out, rusted out van and whose kids are all, you know, derelicts? And we think to ourselves, man, what, what has this person done? There's this guy in my ward, sweetest guy. You know, he showed up in the ward about five years ago after his life had completely collapsed. He was a successful mortgage broker, a lawyer, member of the bar, and the markets crashed. His business crashed. He was sued. He, he lost his law license. He moved to the ward. He moved from a, you know, palatial 
house in the West to this little crappy two-bedroom apartment on the East Coast. Then his teeth fell out. And he showed up one Sunday to church and he had no teeth. So he had to get fitted with prosthetics. I mean, he had no money to pay for any of this. Eventually he, he got those prosthetics and, you know, but, but the, the things that this guy had to endure, I mean, it just, you know, I wouldn't wish, wish it on my worst enemy. I remember talking to one of my friends about him, you know, and he said, oh, that, that guy's very arrogant. You know, you can tell by talking to him and this is happening to him to teach him humility. (laughs) Really? I couldn't believe it. So that's kind of what's happening to Job by his quote unquote friends. I mean, there's, there's even a couple passages in the book of Job where, where Job says, you know, what, what kind of crappy friends are you? You've come here to comfort me and all you're doing is, you know, grilling me, giving me the Nazi-like interrogation to get me to confess to something I, I didn't do. Job just keeps saying, I have done nothing wrong. This is fundamentally unfair. How can this be? And we talk about the patience of Job, but Job's patience has has departed him because he even goes on to say, I wish I were never born. I wish I I wish I could just die. You know, this is a this is a sentiment we we have from time to time in life. I mean, no nobody ever wants to admit that. But you go through a long hard patch. You go through a long season of of hardship and you know, the alternative to life sometimes looks appealing. Anyways, these guys just keep browbeating Job. I mean, one of the, one of the amazing things about Job and what most people take away from Job is, is about Job. The patience of Job, you know, the, the, you know, all that Job had to endure. I mean, no one ever talks about these friends. These friends are jerks. You know, it's like, it's like when you were a kid and you went to your mom, after getting beat up by the neighborhood kids and said, Hey, the neighborhood kids just beat the crap out of me. And she says, well, what did you do to them? What? what? No, I know sometimes we did do something to the neighborhood kids to deserve getting beat up, but a lot of times we haven't. And Job certainly didn't. And then, you know, somewhere around chapter 34, 35, this fourth friend shows up and we're not quite sure who this guy is, but he's a younger guy. And, He's one of these, you know, smart aleck, know everything young guys. You know, you know, we talked about them earlier. So, so he's talking with his three friends who are not empathetic. And then Mr. Smarty Pants shows up, the young know it all. Again, it's just, it's just, it's miraculous that this was written 2,500 years ago. And that this character, this archetype existed 2,500 years ago. And, and this character, the smart aleck young know-it-all with no experience, he's, he's in Job. He's in the book. I mean, life just hasn't changed all that much. And, you know, like the young elders quorum president who just graduated from Harvard Law School, he, he just isn't that helpful. You know, he says a lot of the right things in Job quotes a lot of scripture, makes a lot of references to the law, but he, but he doesn't, he doesn't solve any problems. He, he's just trying to make himself look smart. 
Anyway, so he piles on for a couple chapters. Finally, in chapter 41, God shows up. We don't hear about Satan anymore. He, he's gone. We, you know, we don't know how they settle their bet. We, we don't know what he, you know, we don't hear, we don't hear what happens. But, but God shows up in chapter 41. And God starts to list all the things that God can do. And the list is exhaustive. It's creation. It's the universe. It's, it's the hurricanes. It's the volcanoes. It's the earthquakes. It's all the people. It's all the animals. It's the sea monsters. There's this odd reference to, to sea monsters. The Leviathan. You know, he basically says, I've created the Leviathan. You know, like that's the, the great symbol of his power, the, that he's created the Leviathan. It's, and, and God asked a question at the end of this long list. He said, can any of you guys do that? And then Job returns to form, the, the earlier form that we saw before he was temporarily broken. Except he's different. You know, he's Job, but now he's Job having gone through these miseries and having understood with his spirit. Remember Wilfred Anderson, the difference between the heart and the mind. So now he's understood with his spirit, with, with his deep inner being, this experience that he's been through. And he's understood with his being viscerally where he stands vis-a-vis God. He has the proper perspective. He's like Kisa on the side of the road looking up at the glowing village and realizing something deep. And then it says in Job, and I think this is interesting, it says in verse 5, chapter 42 of the King James Version of Job, you know, first of all, he repents. He said, you're right, God, I can't do anything. And you're just way beyond anything I can comprehend. And then he says in verse 5, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. Some people have said, oh, Job finally saw God. You know, the the literalists will say, oh, God showed up and he saw him face to face. And and that's the ultimate goal of life is to be able to see God with your eyes. I don't want to sound like an iconoclast, but I think seeing God with your eyes is overrated. And I think if you're not in the proper spiritual state, I don't even like putting it that way because it sounds like there's some sort of worthiness, um, some sort of, you know, elaborate temple interview you need to go through. And if, unless you can pass this interview, seeing God, won't, that, that's not what I'm trying to say. But I think if you haven't developed, if you haven't become someone with the depth of experience that, that, someone like Kisa has gained or someone like Job has gained. I don't, I don't think seeing God matters. I guess what I'm trying to say is it's more important in my view to gain experience and understand our connection with God through our experience than, than it is to actually see God. So I don't think it means he literally saw God, but I think it goes back to this to this paradigm that we've been talking about which is the difference between knowing something abstractly or hearing something 
of the ear, learning something in a book. There's a difference between that and seeing something with your eyes or knowing something deep within your spirit, deep within your heart, having experience and all that that entails. And in verse 6, Job suddenly realizes how immature he had been compared to what he had become at the end. He realizes that that in chapters 3 to 30 sorry 3 to 41 he was he was shockingly immature and self-centered compared to what he had become after he came out of the other end of this experience. And so he says, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. I mean, I think he's really saying he abhors what he had been. He realizes how childish it had been. That's pretty hard to hear sometimes. Job was childish. He'd been through all this, this, all these trials and you're calling him childish. But compared to what he had become, yes, he was childish. And so he repented. He changed. You know, he said, I'm a different person now. Which is really what repentance is. You just become a different person. So he repents. And and once he has been deepened and changed by this experience, then God sort of shrugs and says, great. You know, now Job, you're the enlightened one here. Why don't you go Conduct. Why don't you go officiate at the uh, officiate in a sacrificial ceremony? Remember, it's the law of Moses times for your three friends. There's three friends who have who have not progressed to the point where where Job is. They've they they have not internalized the same experiences. You know, we I've been bashing on these three friends. You know, but. You know, they do make a good point. And let's remember back to last episode about the villagers. You know, the villagers who just wanted to say to Kisa, Kisa, your baby's dead. I mean, those villagers made a good point. Kisa's baby was dead. And, and these three friends make a good point, which in many circumstances would apply and be relevant, which is, Job, maybe you did something to cause all these terrible things to befall you. You know, like when you get beat up, by the neighborhood kids, sometimes mom is right. You have done something to provoke him. What did you do to provoke him? Okay, and so, you know, I've, I've bashed on these friends, but, you know, sometimes people's lives are in the crapper because they've done irresponsible things. You know, sometimes the, the divorced guy living in the basement, and I referred, him last, referred to him last episode, Sometimes the divorced guy living in the basement who's who's bankrupt, sometimes it's because he was cheating on his wife and embezzling money and his life turned turned to crap on him because of his own doing. I mean, that happens a lot. And sometimes they just, you know, people like that just won't face facts. And you need to draw it out of them a little bit. And so let's, you know, let's give these three friends the benefit of the doubt. Let's say that they were, that they were doing that. Still, there's, there's a depth of understanding that they didn't, that they have not yet acquired, that Job did going through this painful, difficult, refining process. 
And even though Job lost it, and you know he didn't curse God, but he certainly lost his patience, he went beyond his ability to keep it together. And I think that was God's point. I think that was God's aim to push him, to stretch him. You know, even though he, <laughs> you know, he got pushed beyond his abilities, it was okay. It's not, you know, Job was not sinning the way we think about sin. Job was growing. So God asked Job to officiate in the sacrificial ceremony. Job does. And it's then that God rewards, I don't know if you know, reward is not the right word. It's then that Job grows into even more, an even broader sense of himself. And it's represented in this book as he had twice as many cattle and twice as many sheep and he got a new family. And you know, again, I keep thinking about Job's wife with no mention of her. That's, but you know, let's, let's assume that she was having similar experiences. If, you know, if we rewrote Job today, we'd talk a lot about her. But Job comes out in the end greatly expanded, having much more depth to him, a much deeper understanding. The entire process has been additive. It's, it's given Job experience. Experience is a tricky thing. We've talked about that before. It's hard to explain experience. It's hard to use words to convey the power of experience. In fact, you really can't use words to explain the power of experience. We talked last episode about the difference between the word honey and the experience of tasting honey. Once you taste it, the word is less important. You know, and so Job understood God and his purposes through his ears. You know, he had heard this, he had been taught this, he knew it abstractly, but he had not experienced it or seen it until he had been through this. You know, and it was, it was stretching and difficult and hard. But I think another lesson that Job learned is that it was all good. It was all good. You know, we're afraid sometimes in our community of experience. And, and we use gospel tenets and commandments and obedience. Uh, we use all these things as insurance policies against any sort of difficulties that are gonna, that are gonna teach us experience. But life just does not work that way. I mean, I do believe it's better to keep commandments and to try to be moral and to be ethical. Than not. I'm not saying we need to go out and start experimenting like, like a big, te- like you know, students at a Big Ted Ten college campus. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that at all. But this idea that we have inside our church, and it's not just our church. I mean, it's, it's all religions. I think that that you know, obedience will keep you safe. Just just do A, B, C, D, E, and and nothing bad will befall you. That is just a, a lie. I don't know why we. I don't know why we can't think of a more sophisticated and a more nuanced and a more rigorous way of, of describing life and the process of obtaining experience. Although maybe that in and of itself is, is the fundamental problem. You simply can't describe experience. You can't, you can't use words to, 
to convey it. Still, having said that, I, th- I think we can do a better job preparing our children. You know, Job at least knew by his ear what God was doing. You know, he, he, he had somehow learned it abstractly, I think. You know, I want to give the benefit of the doubt to these friends, and I want to give the benefit of the doubt to to people in our our community who teach a more simplistic, you know, follow the commandments, don't go astray, you'll be safe, you know, you'll be protected, you'll be you'll be nothing will pierce the bubble. I mean, you know, but but I do believe that 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 is really unhelpful. That being, you know, that that's too simplistic. And again, don't get me wrong. <laughs> I think if you're um, out imbibing every weekend, you're gonna you're gonna experience certain dangers. <laughs> you're gonna experience certain miseries that you can completely avoid if you're not imbibing every weekend. I do believe that. You know, I'm not advocating that we go out and start experimenting with every sin and and start monkeying with every sort of moral code we've ever been taught like you know like, like we've already talked about I'm not I'm not, I'm not suggesting that I, I mean I understand that still I, I just don't think we prepare our people for the for the deeper lessons in life as well as well as we could I mean there's no way to completely prepare them if there were then you know we wouldn't come down here I suppose but one of the things I think we we can teach, and if, if there's anything I want to leave today with with you, the listener, is everything that happens is good. It's all good. You know, at a very superficial level, there's good and evil. But at a higher, more transcendent level, it's all good. Even evil's good. It all gets transcended, and it, it's all get used. It all gets gets used by God. He's the great alchemist. Satan never came back. Lucifer never came back. God never explained to Lucifer what he was doing. You know, Lucifer might have been gloating somewhere that he had that he had tricked God, or maybe he just went away saying, oh, I, "I can't break Job. I'm going to go try to break somebody else." But God was using Lucifer. You know, God uses all that we experience and all that we experience is what we need to experience. And that, that's a, that's a, may sound very Eastern and very formless and wishy-washy, but, but I think when you have a little bit of experience, you appreciate that and, and you understand it. Anyways, I've gone on too long. Thanks for listening. I hope this has been useful somewhat. Until next time.